This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. I'm so excited. All right. From, thank you, Ian. From September to now, we've been going through the book of Mark. You guys enjoyed Mark? It's rocked my world many times throughout this series. That's what, what, three and a half months of Mark. Whoa. But over and over and over again, Mark has been revealing who Jesus is. He asked the question right up front, who is Jesus? And he asked the question throughout the whole book. And if you were to look back, you can get online, iloveelevate.com, look at the messages, and as you run through the messages, you'll realize that every single portion of Mark that we've talked about, he has revealed something about Jesus. And here's just a quick overview. Remember how we started with the Trinity? I don't know about you, but that was complex and wild. So, Jesus is one of the Trinity. That by itself is so profound. Jesus is the prophesied one, preceded by the messenger. Jesus is the Son of Man, God made flesh. He is the compassionate God, the example for us to follow and self-sacrifice. He is the bread in the wilderness, who is more than enough. He is the long-awaited Christ, the eternal King. He is Yahweh's manifest presence on earth. Jesus is the son of righteousness, and he is the Passover lamb whose blood will restore the broken covenant. And tonight, Mark is going to conclude with the same message that he's been telling us over and over again since Mark chapter 1 through Mark 16. He has been revealing it over and over and over and over again. It is that Jesus is the son of God. And how we approach that truth determines the rest of our lives. The implications touch every aspect of who we are. Do we or do we not believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And Mark is throwing that out there. Each of us gets to wrestle with that. So the book of Mark itself is divided into two halves, Mark 1 through 8 and Mark 9 through 16. And both halves begin with God's voice from heaven declaring, this is my Son. And both halves end with the disciples being very, very confused. And it's perfect because that's the same struggle that we go through. Whenever the word is revealing over and over again and and that preacher that one Sunday and that podcast and it's just like, yes, it's clicking. And then we're like, but what? We go through the, the very same thing. Tonight we're concluding with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm so excited because this is, this is core gospel. There's an old theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said that when he visited the United States, he said that one of the things that was preached the least was the gospel. 
And so I hope that wherever God has me, that I'm always coming back to the cross. I'm always coming back to we were sinners and lost. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus. Jesus died so that we can be set free and have that relationship restored. And then he rose from the grave. I hope it always comes back to that. Lord, may that be true. And you always use me in that. So coming back, here are the verses that we anchored this whole thing on. Going back to Malachi. Malachi is looking forward to when God is visiting earth himself. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. I'm coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure in his day of coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap, a launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, that represents God's people, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So I'm coming, says God, and I'm going to purify my people. Isaiah 53, 5-6. Isaiah is also looking forward to this coming Messiah, and he says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own selfish ways. And the Lord has laid on him, this coming Messiah, the iniquity, the sin of us all. And so we come to Mark chapter 14. Jesus has just held his last supper with his disciples. If you weren't here last week, check out the podcast. It's online. It's so fun. He has left the upper room. They are going out into the night, and it's hours from when he will be betrayed. Mark 14, we're going to start in verse 27. And Jesus said to them, he looks at his disciples, and he says, All of you will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. All right, you got, first of all, Jesus is predicting his own death. So Jesus has always been in control. There's never been anything outside of his sovereignty of his plan. Jesus is like, by the way, I'm going to be killed. And when I am, you guys are going to run for the hills. You're going to betray me. And how do they respond to this? And Peter said to him, even though all of them fall away, I will not. You got to imagine. They must have been so angry at Peter. Imagine like, one of your friends pointing at you and all the other circle and saying, even when they all fail, I'm going to stick with you, teacher. And they're all, what? Who, who let you say something about me? And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster, crow, rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. They're all on board with it. Jesus, no matter what happens, if we have to die, we're not leaving your side. Jesus is in control. Nothing's going to happen that's outside of his knowledge. Think about the donkey. All right, go into town. You're going to find a donkey tied up. Bring him in. Jesus knew that there was going to be a donkey. He knew that the owner was going to allow them. Go into town, and there's going to be this upper room already prepared. Tonight. I'm going to be betrayed, and you're going to run. You're going to deny me. Jesus is absolutely in control. So they go to this garden called Gethsemane, and Jesus picks out 
his three like top dog disciples. He's like, guys, special mission for you. Come with me. We're going to hold a prayer sesh. I don't think he said sesh. He takes them off into the dark and he says, guys, would you just pray? Just pray fervently right now. Pray for me. And so he goes off and it says that Jesus just weeps before God. He knows what's coming. Jesus is in mourning for what is about to happen. He knows his death. He knows his crucifixion. He knows that the weight of your sin and mine is about to be laid on his shoulders. That all of that guilt, all of that shame, that separation from the Father is going to be weighed down on him. And he is in mourning and he's asking his closest friends, please pray for me. And when he comes back, they're not praying. They're not even sitting around talking about Jesus-y things. They're asleep. And he wakes them up. Come on, guys, pray for me. I really need you here. I really need your support. And he goes and prays two more times. And every time he comes back, they're asleep. Jesus is alone. He is having to walk this road by himself. And then suddenly, the third time he wakes them up, he's like, guys, it's too late. They're already coming. And in the middle of the night, soldiers and this crowd comes to arrest Jesus as if he's some sort of thief, as if he's some sort of murderer. And they come with chains to tie him up and take him away. And one of his close friends, you already know the story, Judas comes. And because it's dark and they don't really know who it is, Judas says to the priests, I'm going to point him out to you so you know who to arrest. And I'll point him out to you by, it'll be the guy that I go and greet with a kiss. And Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is utterly alone. And whenever they come and arrest him, guess what? 12 out of 12 run for the bushes to get away, to hide. They weren't ready to stand by him. They weren't ready to die. They run for the darkness to hide themselves. And then we get this funny little one-verse story. Maybe it's two verses. I think it's awesome. Right here in the middle of this. We're going to read it just because it humors me. Verse 51. So we have the, the crowd that's come to arrest Jesus. We have the disciples that ran to get away from being arrested. And then we have this one guy. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. There's that guy. A lot of scholars believe that this might actually be Mark as a boy. Because remember, Mark was not one of the disciples. He was Peter's follower. He was Peter's disciple. And he would have been a translator and a scribe for Peter. But Jesus' ministry would have revolved around his area. The disciples used to spend the night and, and stay with Mark's parents in Jerusalem whenever they came. And so there's a really good chance that Mark knew Jesus as a little boy. So how crazy, this is totally dumb. We're departing scripture and going into my imagination. How cool would it have been if Jesus is leaving the, la the, the Last Supper and going out into the garden and Mark wakes up and he sneaks out of the house. He's underdressed because he just came from the bed and he's sneaking out to go follow Jesus. Or maybe he sees this big crowd going towards the garden that he knew Jesus was going to and he's just curious but I love that it opens up saying, and a young man followed him. As in, Jesus' 12 ran, and he stayed. He wanted to stay by Jesus. He is following Jesus until they grab him. And when they grab him, he's like, boo-hoo, and he's out. And he moons everybody. 
I think I think it'd be really cool if it was Mark, just as a kid, curious and following what's going on. Jesus is led to trial, and he is brought before the Sanhedrin. And you need to have the image here. This is a secret court. This was not meant to happen. They are illegally doing this. They want so badly to kill Jesus that they call their very, very best friends to come and be judges here. And the, the, all their job is, is they have to prove that Jesus is being sacrilegious and blasphemous. And if they can just catch Jesus in saying that he's the actual son of God, he is definitely blaspheming and he deserves to die. And so they're surrounding him and they're questioning him and they're arguing and people are lying about him, but their lies don't match. And then they finally ask him straight up. And I want to read about that. Mark 14, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Anybody catch that? His response is not, by the way, yes. His response is, I am the holy name of God, of Yahweh. His response is such a knife to the side. He doesn't just say yes. He calls himself by the divine name and then places himself as God's son seated at the right hand of the father. There's no denial of who he claims to be. And the high priest tears his garments and says, what further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him, deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to, and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows, and they start abusing Jesus. This is crazy. Meanwhile, Peter, who ran for the dark, has kind of secretly snuck back to the trail and following and he kind of boldly walks in to the outer gardens of where this is all going on so he can listen and find out what's going on with Jesus. And so he's straining and listening. You guys know the story of Peter? Hey, you're, you're with that guy. You deserve to be in there on trial with him. No, 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 it's not me. And you all know the story. Three times Peter denies Jesus. And on the third time, the rooster crows a second time. and they, He breaks into tears and runs into the night. So the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, have declared Jesus worthy of execution, but Israel is not a free country. They are underneath the rule of Rome. And underneath the laws of Rome, they have no right to kill anybody. So they need to get the higher authority, the Roman authority, to kill Jesus. So they're like, aha, you have blasphemed? You called yourself God? We want you dead, but we got to figure out a way to convince Rome to kill you. So they take Jesus to Pilate, and they come up with the best story they can think of that would sound like he's worthy of death. So they bring him to Pilate, and they say, Hey, Pilate, he thinks he's the king of the Jews. And you need to understand this. If you are Caesar and somebody under in a nation that you rule comes and says they are the king, that's rebellion. That's insurrection. That needs to be put to a stop. And the Jews want nothing more than to rise up against Rome and run them out. And so if they can convince Pilate that this guy is calling himself king, off with his head. They'll be able to convince him. So here we go. Mark 15, verse 2. And Pilate, he's the governor of the area. He is the Roman guy. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. You see, Pilate couldn't care less if this guy thinks he's God. But what he does care about is making sure nobody's rebelling in this Roman Empire. And so at that, Pilate was able to give him the death sentence. And then we move into this great story that I hope will capture your imagination. We're moving into the Passion of Christ where Jesus' suffering begins. And it begins with this crazy custom that Pilate started. Remember, Pilate is, ex- is sentenced him to death. He is going to die because he thinks he may be this rebel. And we get the story of Barabbas. And Pilate, every year, because he wants to keep the Jews manageable, he doesn't want them getting too angry or too out of control because it makes him look bad. Every year around this time, he would release one of their Jewish prisoners just to appease them. And usually the people that was, was arrested was like their family, their friends, you know, and so he releases them and they're all like, hey, Pilate, we like you. And so Pilate's still trying to kind of get Jesus off this death sentence. And Pilate says, okay, every year I do this custom where I let someone go. We have Barabbas, this horrible, terrible murderer who actually did incite a rebellion and I had to put it down. Or we have Jesus, who there's nothing really wrong with him. Barabbas, Jesus, who should we let go? And the chief priests stir up the people. We want Barabbas set free. Crucify Jesus. Barabbas set free. Crucify Jesus. This is Barabbas' luckiest day ever. The actual murderer, the actual rebel, is set free where innocent Jesus is now, catch this, going to pay the death sentence that Barabbas deserved for the crimes that Barabbas actually committed. Are you seeing the theme of substitute here that we talked about last week? That Barabbas was guilty and set free, and Jesus, who is innocent, will be the substitute. That's beautiful. How ironic and fitting that Jesus would bear Barabbas' cross. How ironic and fitting that the next thing that would happen is the soldiers would take Jesus and lay purple robes on him and press a crown of thorns into his head and pretend that Jesus is Caesar and they would bow down in front of him as if he's Caesar, mocking Jesus because Jesus is the eternal king of all peoples. How beautiful is it that when Jesus is on the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull, that they would pull this random guy out of the crowd named Simon of Serene and they would have him carry the wood of the cross for Jesus because Jesus was too weak to carry it himself. Well, just last week we were talking about how the Passover remembers Abraham and Isaac and Isaac would carry his own wood for the fire up the mountain. And so where Simon of Serene is innocent carrying the wood of another, Isaac carried his wood and where the ram took the place of Isaac, Jesus would die on that wood. How beautiful is it? And I don't even know the connection here. I just can't ignore it. The fact that we have all these connections between the near sacrifice of Isaac, we have the eternal king, we have the substitute, and then Jesus the night before held up the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And for some reason, they offer him 
wine on the cross twice. And he refuses it. Maybe it's because at the Last Supper he said, I'm not going to drink of the grape again until I'm doing it with you guys in glory. I don't know. But it's interesting. And let's read the story. Mark 15, verse 24. This is where the gospel lies. This is what it's about. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, that's 9 a.m., when they crucified him. And the inscription and the charge against him read above his head, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He could save others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ of Israel, the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him, the guys on the left and the right, also reviled him. Jesus is utterly alone, utterly rejected and scorned. And what's so cool is they believe that Jesus died the sixth hour. Oh, I'll get there in a minute. Let's keep going. And when the sixth hour, which was noon, high noon, sun is highest, brightest in the sky, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. So God ordains creation to echo the spiritual weight of the event. The sun itself is blocked out at the time of day that it should have been the brightest. I don't know if you caught this, but it kind of blew my mind. What a beautiful connection that the sun is darkened as the sun of righteousness dies on the cross. S-U-N, sun of righteousness, according to Malachi chapter 4. That's so cool. That's another sighting of the themes that we've been watching happen through Mark. Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And I'm not going to try to interpret the Hebrew, but he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, the guy standing by the cross, who was probably holding the hammer, when he stood by facing, and he saw in the way that Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Many scholars believe that Jesus died at the same time as the temple's evening sacrifice. The image of Jesus dying is underlined by this immediate reference to the temple. He dies and then immediately the camera in the story shifts to the temple and the curtain ripping. How crazy would that be is as they're slaughtering the spotless lamb on the altar and the sun is darkened, Jesus is dying and the veil starts ripping. Jesus is the Lamb of God sacrificed. If you missed last week, you missed that all of these themes have been running through Mark and through the whole Bible to this night. The temple curtain ripping is God's declaration that he is not confined in a temple. He is with his people. He is Emmanuel. Mark is giving this conclusive answer at the identity of Jesus. I love it. 
through a non-Jew bad guy who gives this conclusion, surely this was the Son of God. And most of the people at the cross, when they heard Jesus cry out, Eli, Eli, and I can't even pronounce the Hebrew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They didn't even understand that Jesus isn't just speaking his last words. He's actually speaking last words that are the key to understanding what's going on because he was quoting the first line of a famous psalm. And we're going to read that psalm together. Psalm 22. Jesus quoted this psalm as his last words on purpose. Stay with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words of David. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Check this out. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's amazing. The high priests were quoting Psalm 22, and they didn't even know it. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you when my mother nursed me. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have encompassed me or surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths like a ravening ravening and roaring lion. Check this out. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and melted within my chest. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They offered him that wine twice, his mouth being dry. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among me, and from my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All of you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All of you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Lock in with me, pay attention. For from you comes my praise in the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Now remember the promise to Abraham that blessing to be fulfilled through Abraham's line that goes back to the blessing of God that was broken in the Garden of Eden. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship before him, and shall bow all who go down into the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity, as in children and children's children, 
shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. David, to whom God would make a covenant, saying, through you I'm going to bring the king of all, who's going to reign for eternity. God makes this promise. God speaks through him this prophecy, and it begins, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends that through this suffering servant, through this betrayal, through this encirclement of enemies, through this mocking and this scorn, all the people of all the nations will be blessed by God. And the inheritance of their children will be a knowledge of him. So when Jesus is on the cross and speaking his last words, these are not last words of defeat. These are last words that are referring to a psalm that unpacks a suffering servant who through this pain and agony brings triumph and victory for all people, fulfilling an ancient promise from the very founder of their family, Abraham. That is how cool God is. How will Jesus fulfill the mission of the Messiah? Mark has been asking us ever since chapter 9. By becoming the suffering servant. Because through him, all the ends of the earth will turn to Yahweh. To him will belong the kingship. And he will rule over the nations. And all of our posterity will serve him. And then 400 years after David, when the nation of Israel was about to be destroyed, Babylon is at the gates They're about to go down, and it seems like all of God's promises are going to be broken. All of God's promises that he's going to bring this this unending heir, this line coming from David, his promises that he's going to take care of his people. Isaiah prophesies and gives hope. Isaiah 53, now is a really good time to lock in and pay attention. This is so beautiful. Who has believed what he has heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God we assumed he was written off But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, like those disciples, in the same way, we have all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, that passed over lamb. Like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, yet his soul makes an offering of guilt. He shall see his offspring. Catch that. He is going to die. He will be cut off from the land of the living, but he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's not over. It's not over. Death will be defeated. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, one on the left, one on the right. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. We have a glimpse here of Jesus' youth, his mocking, his whipping, his crucifixion, his death and burial, his resurrection, his purpose to bear our sin, and even Romans 8.34, his intercession for us, between us and the Father. Everything that was written about him came to pass. And so Jesus dies at 3 p.m. with a loud cry. You see, how we see a rolling over into the new day is midnight, right? 12 a.m. To them, to the Jews, they believe that their day begins with darkness and opens up into light. So their day begins at sunset of the following day. Does that make sense? Like tomorrow is Thursday. So for a Jew, their Thursday would begin about six-ish tonight when the sun sets. It already set. It's Thursday, guys. Go Jews. Now, the following day for them was their Sabbath day. They can't have this guy hanging on the cross over Sabbath day. They need to get him down and they need to bury him because they can't, they can't be touching someone who's dead on a holy day. So they basically have three hours from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. to do something with his body. And this guy suddenly has this Holy Spirit backbone His name is Joseph of Arimathea, and he goes before Pilate and asks for the body to bury Jesus. This wealthy guy is going to bury Jesus in his own tomb, cut out of stone in the side of the mountain. And so he goes. It's crunch time, guys. They don't have time to anoint him. They don't have time to do all their Jewish burial customs. It's quickly get him off the cross, get him in the tomb, roll the stone, done. Sabbath day starts. And so they're in this rush. They're in such a rush that they don't have the chance to anoint them, which is why three days later when the Sabbath is over, the first thing that happens is these women that loved him are taking those oil and spices to go and anoint his body. They didn't have the chance to do it before. But here's something that I'm driving at. This is so cool to me. Remember what happened three days before Jesus' death? He's in this, this, this place. It's called the house of Simon the leper. And he's sitting there with people, and this woman comes in out of nowhere, and she breaks what? She breaks the alabaster jar of oil over Jesus' head. And what does Jesus say about her? She did this to prepare me for my burial. You see, Jesus had been pre-anointed. He had already knew. God's foreknowledge and sovereignty had already taken care of all of this stuff. It had already planned out this whole thing. When they're burying Jesus quickly in this rush before the Sabbath day starts, he already smelled like these burial spices. It was already ordained. None of this was by accident. And those women that didn't get a chance to do those customs that loved him so much, they saw where he was buried. And after the Sabbath day was over, on the third day, they come to the tomb. Mark 16, verse 1. You ready? We're going to read the rest of Mark. I love how it ends. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome 
brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting there on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. Amen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you. Okay, stop for a second. Tell who? And Peter. This guy who is crushed. This guy who knows that he blew it. Absolutely guilty. Betrayed the person that he loved. Not one time, three times. And this messenger of God says, go tell the disciples and don't forget about Peter. He needs to know. He needs to know that the one he loves is risen. The Savior, the one who forgives sin, he's back. Tell Peter. Remind him. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Remember? Remember what Jesus has been saying all this time? He's going to Galilee. Go. And they went out and they fled the tomb. Trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. That's the end of Mark. Jesus is risen. These women are terrified. The angel tells them, go, tell the disciples. And they run out, scared. And it's over. Why? And if you look at your Bibles, there have been verses that have been inserted, 9 through 20. And these verses were later added throughout church history, probably to fill the gap, because a whole lot of people thought, maybe like we do, like, uh, there's more to the story. And so people went in and added them. But when Mark's gospel, when he's sitting down writing this, his ink dried there. Why? Some people believe that his abrupt ending was because he just died. The end. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Sorry. And this Monty Python and the Holy Grail image, you know, and suddenly the, <laughs> the animator suffered a fatal heart attack and died. Ah, and he falls back on his chair. I'm sorry. That is so off topic. Some people believe that because Mark was written so early after these events that Mark didn't have a reason to finish it because everybody that's in the story is still alive and, tell, and telling it. So there was like no reason to tell what happened afterwards because it's sort of still happening and everybody is here that can testify to what happened afterwards. But I think that there's a third option that makes so much sense. And it's this. Mark leaves us hanging with his first and last question. He opens both halves. Remember I mentioned that. He opens both halves with God declaring, this is my son. And he closes both halves with people being confused and afraid. Why? Because we don't relate to the people that heard the big voice. We relate more to the people that are confused and afraid. And Mark leaves us hanging with that question, who do you believe Jesus is? Me and you. Can we actually come to grips 
with who Jesus is? Have we wrestled with this? Because if he is God's son, it demands something of us. Mark has given us his conclusion. Mark himself, the author, opens up Mark 1.1, calling Jesus the son of God. And then God the Father speaks about the baptism and the transfiguration. This is my son. Then the demons, when Jesus goes to, to kick them out of people, the demons go, oh, the son of God. Jesus, in his own testimony in front of the Sanhedrin, said, I am. And then this Roman soldier, the Gentile bad guy, declares Jesus is the son of God. The only character left in the story that hasn't declared who Jesus is, is the reader. Us. It's been testified over and over and over and over again. Mark has never held it back. It's never been a mystery who Mark believes it is. When we look at Jesus and we see him as the one of the Trinity, the prophesied one, the son of man, the compassionate God, the example for us to follow. He is bred in the wilderness. He is the long-awaited Christ. He is Yahweh's manifest presence. He is the son of righteousness. He is the Passover lamb. Over and over and over again, Mark is defending who Jesus is. The last character to come to a decision is us. I want to close with this thought. Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin and they wanted to crucify him because of his claim to be the son of God. He was accused of being God's son. He stood before Pilate and he was accused of being king. What do you believe? Do you believe the testimony that he was the son of God? Because if so, you have to accept that there are implications to that. Because if he is the son of God, then you have to accept that he is king. He was tried on both of these accounts, and both of these accounts were absolute yes. What do you believe? It's one thing to believe he's the son of God. We can assent to that. Sure, this guy, one guy who lived, and maybe he's connected to the creator, if there's a creator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you believe that he's king, then we have to deal with the fact that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. Is he your king? If he's the son of God, the next question is, is he your king? And this isn't some sort of ridiculous thing. Like, I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on, but if you're like, hashtag not my president, it's like, excuse me, are you giving up citizenship? Are you leaving? You can't be like, Jesus is God, but hashtag not my king. You have to accept, if you say yes to one, the second one has demand for a response. You can say, I believe God's son and I just don't like him. That's probably what that whole campaign was about. But if you're going to say yes, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the son of God and I make you king, then it will have a change of lifestyle. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that Mark's ink dried with a question that demands a response. And Lord, I pray right now that every heart in here comes to the conclusion 
that you are the son of God and then makes the testimony that you are their king. Oh, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we have an elevate January 15th reunion in heaven and there's not a face in this room that's missing. Lord, give us discipline and strength. Help us to do the things that we can't do by ourselves. We can't clean our hearts. We can't change our nature. How much more difficult are our actions? Holy Spirit, come and do your work. Be the spirit of holiness in us and work from the inside out. Lord, you are good. You are holy. You are our son of righteousness. Lord, we love you and we surrender to you. And if there's anyone in here, Lord, that is struggling with those questions, first, Lord, thank you for that struggle. And I pray, Lord, that they will will receive wisdom from people that they respect and direction. And they will have a very real encounter with you. Lord, you are the king of Elevate. You're the king of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.